Hey everyone, after a long season, the guys have decided to take the week off. So in lieu of a regular episode this week, we're giving everyone on the main feed a taste of the minor league extra with Ryan and RotoWire's James Anderson. Don't worry, they'll be back next week to wrap the season and look forward to the winter. It's episode 54 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Minor League Extra, your monthly deep dive into the farm system, Milwaukee Brewers. I'm Ryan Top, and I'm joined today by James Anderson of RotoWire. How's it going, James? It's going well. I'm glad that the fantasy season's done. It's kind of a relaxing time of year for me. Still, still a lot of stuff to do previewing 2023, but uh, fewer kind of deadlines, fewer kind of crunch situations. So, uh, enjoying it. Yeah. So, how did you end up for this season? Like compared to your your norm for uh, all your teams, how many different leagues did you play in this year? <laughs> um, I was in twenty six leagues. Okay, that's big. That's huge. <laughs> Which is, uh, a new high. Um, I'd I'd like to be in closer to like fifteen, but I the ones that I'm in that I would want to quit are ones that I'm in with like friends and stuff. So um, I don't know if I'll be able to dial it back from 26 next year, but uh, I, I made profit, um, but I, you know, could have done a little bit better um, if, I, if I'd done a couple things differently in the draft, but uh, it was, it was a good year. So it was less uh, like end of season type of stuff. It was more like looking back at the drafts and going, if I'd done this better. Yes. Yeah. Yes, okay. like I, just just kind of some decisions kind of in the early rounds. I, I think I if I had just not taken any starting pitching in the first like four or five rounds, I think I would have done better because I ended up having like more starting pitching than I needed and not as much hitting as I needed. So um kind of capped myself in terms of just how good some of my teams could have been in the draft. I suppose this year with the, the dejuiced ball, it probably did open up more pitching depth in ways that you couldn't necessarily count on. Like you didn't know going into the year, how much of an effect that was going to have. So it's always a guess that you're trying to figure out like what the league environment is going to be like in which direction you need to go. Cause there've been years like 2019. I imagine if you looked at it then, like it would have been much, much harder to find starting pitching just because right. yeah the balls flying out of the park so much so yeah go like i i was going after like a lot of the like renfro marcelo zuna jorge soler types like in the middle rounds to get my like power and you know renfro was a hit but like kind of whiffing on some guys in the middle rounds that i was hoping to get you know 30 homers from left me a little light there yeah yeah, I had forgotten, I guess, or or didn't remember or whatever that uh, when Ozuna got traded from St. Louis to Atlanta, that two of the guys that uh, went back the other way were Sergio Alcantara and uh, Zach Gallen. Sandy, Sandy Alcantara. Oh yeah, sorry, not Sergio, yeah. Sandy. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's that's one of the all time, one of the all time trades, really. Um, yeah, seems like the seems like the NL Central is always involved somehow in these just legendary heist trades yeah and it wasn't yeah it was just florida not to atlanta 
Ozuna's bounced around so much that, yeah, the, the, there's many trades to consider there. But, yeah. Anyway, uh, so the postseason has started. And uh, I, how much of that have you been able to watch? Are you planning to watch? I'm I'm honestly, like, not going to watch much of it at all. <laughs> um, I, I'm very happy to just kind of turn the baseball watching off for – a few months here and uh you know got i'll be watching like nba when that gets going but um yeah just kind of hunkered down and and doing my work um yeah and going on vacation here in a, in a few days so yeah enjoy, enjoy that that's gonna be fun so anyway this uh if you're listening to this you know that uh, you can help fans find the podcast by rating and reviewing milwaukee's tailgate on itunes this podcast will heavily focus on your questions and the easiest way to submit those for the podcast is through the Patreon page, uh, which a few people did this month. We didn't get as many as I was hoping for, but uh, it was kind of late, uh, late notice on that. So I get it. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter, and you'll find that on our Milwaukee's Tailgate Twitter bio. And as always, this podcast is a thank you for your continued financial support. Your interest in listening make it possible for us to keep doing this, and we, uh, we're very grateful for that. So thank you, as always, for that. All right, so what we are going to be doing this month is a little bit in the vein of um, thing or not a thing is basically the game we're going to be playing here. I have some numbers for the top prospects, kind of went through the the top prospect lists and have just about everybody in there except Tyler Black. I left Tyler Black out because I just couldn't find anything interesting there to really talk about because we've talked a bunch about his uh, – his proclivities for uh, taking walks as opposed to striking out. So, and he's in the fall league. We'll probably uh, loop back to that once we wrap up the fall league down the road here. So there will be interesting things there. He missed a bunch of time this year with injury. So yeah, we'll, uh, we'll loop back to him, but I've got something for just about everybody else here. And so I'm just going to pose these questions to James and spark a discussion here about uh, uh, a lot of it is it gets into sort of meanings of small sample sizes or just like what are you pulling out that that has value for uh, prediction from uh, some of these uh, these various stats that are out there? So uh, I, I don't think it was a surprise that uh, um, that Jackson Churio was the uh, minor league player of the year in the brewery system. And one of the breakouts overall, I think Pipeline officially called him like their breakout guy of the year or whatever. Um, so we're going to start with him at the top here. And just to ask if this is a thing or not. So uh, as you may have heard, Jackson Trio was promoted to double A at the end of the season. He got 26 plate appearances and he struck out 11 times and ended up with a 284 OPS. So is this big face plant that he did in a very short time in double A a thing or not a thing, James? You know, 98.5% not a thing, I would say. Um, Like I... I would kind of weight his season sort of by the levels in terms of just how big the sample is almost. So like I would weight what he did at, at low A, like almost like two thirds of how I would weight his season. And then high A, maybe like another third. And then, I mean, it's more just an accomplishment that he even got to double A doesn't turn 19 until spring training. So he could just he could spend all of next year back to double A. Yeah. Yeah. An eighteen year old getting double A. Just like that's nuts. Yeah. 
All right. So not real concerned about that in general. Um, we did have another question here, and this is from uh, Jay Google. And he was asking, so if you remove Churio from the discussion, who do you guys think were the Brewers minor league players of the year here? I mean, Frelick uh, would be the hitter for sure. Um, if you wanted to give like pitcher of the year, I might go with like Carlos Rodriguez. Um, okay. Just because it's for like – Player of the year, minor leaguer of the year. I don't feel like I would weigh in like Robert Gasser or Story Ruiz because they were not in the system for most of the year. Um, but yeah, Sal Frelick would probably be number two behind Trio for player of the year. All right. Yeah, that that does make sense to me. I think that that, yeah, I, I can't really argue with that. And I think Rodriguez did get the nod as their minor league player of the year when that was done. So I, I would have to go back and check in. I suppose it depends on which outlet you're looking at. But I, I seem to remember seeing something like that. So I that makes sense to me. Yeah, you're in good company there because, yeah, it wasn't a, the greatest year for Brewers pitching prospects in general. And we'll have more on that in a moment. But moving on to the aforementioned Sal Fralick. Um, once he was promoted to AAA at the end of the year, in his final 217 plate appearances, he put up a 365, 435, 508 line and walked 19 times compared with only 16 strikeouts is star Sal Freilich a thing or not uh star star seems a little I, you know I I wouldn't say we can like rule it out that he becomes like a a star or something close to that but I I just think you're, you're looking at a guy that's just got a ridiculous ability to make contact and a ridiculous eye at the plate. And then that's doing a lot of the lifting, which is great. Like, I mean, that like he's good at like the hardest thing to be good at. Um, but I mean, he hit 11 homers, played a full season. I think the you're looking at more of like a leadoff hitter than like a number two or a number three hitter. Yeah, I mean, the power has always been the question there, and this is going to be a recurring theme that we have here. Uh, it was mentioned on a recent podcast. Eric Longenhagen was talking about the uh, the idea because they got into talking about Cleveland, and Cleveland has done this thing where they are drafting guys who make contact a lot. That has been their thing. And then working on developing up the power from there, trying to find guys that they think have some power in them to develop up, but really worrying about the contact first, which is a bit of a departure from the way that organizations, especially I think smarter organizations, had generally worked. The Brewers built their that great core that they had by really focusing on power in the, you know, the early 2000s. Like that was the focus. You think back to Corey Hart, mm -hmm. J.J. Hardy, Ricky Weeks, Prince Fielder, Ryan Braun. Like that's all built around those guys just mashing the hell out of the ball. And mm -hmm. so this is sort of a different tact that is being taken. And he mentioned specifically that the Brewers are sort of on a forefront of this, that they are really pushing uh, to be like contact oriented. And you can see it in the draft picks that they've made that, you know, going back to Freilich, but you can go all the way back to say Bryce Terang in 2018 and then just sort of look at the guys that were taken, maybe like in the top 100, most of these guys have been contact over power sorts. And, 
you do worry that that is going to be a limiting factor. So we've talked about that before, but like it is, it is sort of the, the concern with Freilich. And I do think that the, the power being limited there is, is the thing that potentially caps him. And he doesn't seem to have maybe the, the power upside that some of the others like are trying to develop. Like when they go for somebody like say Tyler black, trying to develop up his power, I think is maybe a little bit easier. Freilich, I don't know if he's ever going to be really much of a power hitter, but I mean, looking at what Freilich did this year in, in the three levels, like you said, he did hit 11 homers. So that's like at least playable power. It's at least something that the Mm -hmm. pitchers have to respect. Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, I would have take, if you'd said over under double digit homers for him this year, I would have probably said under. Um, So I, I think it, you know, just really don't want to take anything away from anything he did this year. I think he, he performed about as well as he possibly could have. Uh, at the plate yeah and it's not like there was like a power spike at one level that he was at it was actually pretty even across the board you look at it in 92 plate appearances at wisconsin he has two home runs and then he gets up to 253 plate appearances in double a and it's five home runs and then it's 217 at nashville and now it's four home runs and i think it is worth remembering also that nashville's in the international league which is the less powerful uh the less uh like there are fewer parks where you're playing on the moon compared to the PCL. Right. right? So it's, it's not the power environment at triple a that I think Bruce fans are probably accustomed to thinking like you kind of have to discount triple a power numbers because so many of those parks are just like, you know, crazy uh, power havens. So I don't know. Do you remember offhand? I think Nashville plays a little bit towards uh favoring power, but not like an extreme uh, hitters park that way. I'm I'm pulling up the Baseball America Park Factors um, yeah. from last year, and uh, Nashville actually below, kind of well below average actually for for power. Um, okay, about about even on runs and batting average. Uh, but yeah, I mean he, this is about as pitcher friendly of a AAA environment as you're going to find. All right. And that actually takes us right into our next question, because uh, I want to talk a little bit here about the guy that I had number three in the system. You had him a little bit further down, but uh, and PJ Wessels actually asked this question and I sort of added to it. Um, Is Joey Weimer having a better slash line at triple A compared with double A a thing or not? And I wanted to also note here because this was one of the things I wanted to ask you. Uh, he dropped his K rate from over 30% in double A to under 20% in triple A. So his K rate really, really plummeted. And we're talking about not huge sample sizes here, but we're, we're talking about at each level, uh, over 200 plate or not quite over 200 plate appearances. Sorry. He had 375 plate appearances at, uh, or 374 at, uh, Biloxi and then 175, or 174 at uh, at Nashville. So approaching 200, but not quite there yet. And he really, really dropped that strikeout rate late. Um, what do you make of the fact that he was you know, significantly better overall at AAA and that he dropped that strikeout rate a lot? Yeah, uh, it, it's kind of, uh, it's a little puzzling to me. I, I, think, I think I mentioned this on last month's, pod but I, I think 
double A pitchers like had kind of figured him out to an extent. Um, mm-hmm. And you'll also there, there's the pitching at triple A and double A is just so different um, and not necessarily harder at triple A. Um, like you're you're more likely to to run up against like an elite pitching prospect at double A than you are at triple A. Um, but the guys at triple A have a bit more sort of craft. Um, so it's just, it's, it's different environments for hitting. I tend to think that his numbers at double A are kind of more representative of the player he is than the numbers at triple A, but it's, you know, it kind of, it makes his range of outcomes a little wider, I think, uh, and the high-end outcomes maybe a bit more realistic based on what we saw him do at AAA. But I, I do still, if I were to choose one of the two levels to, to really wait with him, uh, I would I would choose what he did at AA. Yeah, and I mean, that's fair because it's more than double the number of plate appearances. So you're, you're in good, you know, just like general statistical uh, – uh, solid ground there by picking the larger sample. But yeah, just to, to put a finer point on it, he hit 243, 321, 440 at AA, which is fine, but it's not anything that's going to get anybody's attention, really. 761 OPS. Once he was at AAA, it bumps to a 287, 368, 520 slugging with an 888 OPS. So that is that is more eye catching and definitely something I was paying attention to. I think that uh, like we talked about this on the the major league pod a bunch because there are people saying, well, should they let Hunter Renfro go so that they can have Joey Weimer come up right away? And I was like, "Uh, no, that's really that's premature at best uh, at this point. But it is something that you can think of that, you know. If things do break right, and you're going to want to see what Weimer does over a larger sample in AAA, where he'll almost certainly be beginning next year, unless he's traded. Uh, mm-hmm. I, th- I think he's ticketed for AAA again. And I think that you would like to see him sustain those AAA numbers and maybe even improve on them. And then there will be opportunities in the coming years because Hunter Renfro is in his final year of team control for next year, assuming the Brewers bring him back, which I think they will. Uh, so there are opportunities coming here and Weimer is definitely an interesting guy and somebody, I, I think he's, he, he's more in the category of an interesting guy that you, you don't mind, you know, having around to take a shot on, but he's not somebody you're necessarily planning the future around. You're not like opening up space so that mm-hmm. Joey Weimer can be like part of your future the way you would with, you know, maybe some of these top guys that we've already talked about. So yeah, I mean, I think I think he probably logs fewer big league plate appearances next year than like of like of Frelick, um, Mitchell, and Ruiz. I think Weimer finishes fourth among those guys in terms of big league plate appearances next year. Yeah, and actually, that's a great segue because my next question here was about uh, Esther Ruiz. And this was something that was called to my attention by somebody uh, when we were just like going over that trade for the 10 billionth time, because that thing is never, ever, ever going to die. That is going to be the subject that just keeps on coming up. But uh, he brought up the fact that Esther Ruiz hard hit rate was well below the average in uh, AAA. 
And I went and looked it up. And when I looked it up, it was like in the mid thirties. I couldn't find it again when I was, was prepping for this, but it was, it was like down into the 30th percentile was where Ruiz's hard hit rate in AAA was. So, um, how big a thing and and if you look like his his hard hit rate in the big leagues which is a very small sample but it was it was also very bad it was down in like 6 percentile so uh looking at this how big a worry is this that Ruiz doesn't seem to make a lot of hard contact I mean it's it's just who he is you know like like Fre- Frelick isn't going to rate well on that either uh, right we've got the minor league hard hit data at Rotowire and uh, Frelick and Ruiz basically have the exact same hard hit rates on the the season um, and it's just that's like what you said kind of at the top of the show with the Brewers going after these guys that make a lot of contact um ideally are making decent swing decisions uh that's kind of the mold that he's in Mm -hmm. he's you know if if he were a guy that was hitting for a ton of power hitting the ball really hard all the time he'd be like a top 10 prospect in baseball um because he's he's really good at a lot of other stuff uh so it's just it's who he is um you know i think the thing with him is kind of is he a is he a, like a number eight, number nine hitter, or is he a leadoff hitter? Um, mm-hmm. You know, that, that's that's kind of where where it's going to fall. Like if he, if he makes enough hard contact to be like a ten to twelve homer guy, then he might be a, a leadoff caliber guy. Uh, otherwise, he might just be a guy that hits eighth or ninth and uh, puts his speed to work on the bases. Um, and, and in the field, right? Right. Yep. Yeah. So the other thing to consider too with uh, with Ruiz is that you brought up swing decisions, and that is the thing that people have pointed to about his breakout this year because San Diego and he were both very open about the fact that that's what he spent last winter working on was he was working on improving his swing decisions because they were very bad, and he right. improved them and made them a lot better, and that is. Generally, you like to see like something you can point to where you go, okay, this was a thing that was worked on and it led to a tangible outcome improvement. And in terms of being able to point to it and say, okay, this isn't this isn't probably completely smoke and mirrors. There's probably some real growth as a player going on here because this was the focus and he improved it. And so and you could see it. So it's probably at least somewhat legitimate. The question is kind of one of upside and that's going to be the thing over and over here is like how much upside do some of these guys have just because they don't have the traditional power that you associate with a high upside hitting prospect you know in general you need to have pretty high power and they have a lot of guys that don't necessarily have that or have weird things about their power like Garrett Mitchell Um, but Speaking of power questions, and this one, you know, I had to get this in there, and this was one of the things I really wanted to uh, to get into the podcast because 
Uh, this is this is just my thing. Like this is the brand of this podcast at this point is me trying to convince you that Bryce Terang is a thing. So <laughs> like it's what we do here. Like pretty much every month, I, I try to work this in. So um, Bryce Terang hit 13 home runs at AAA, uh, which more than doubled the total of 10 that he had in his first three minor league seasons combined. So he hit 13 uh, home runs at AAA this year, and. Like this is a, for him, this is like a huge power spike. So is this a thing or is it not a thing? I mean, I think it's, it's more of a thing than Jackson Churio's double a numbers. Um, like it's, it's, it's better than I would have expected. I think what we referenced uh, just a couple minutes ago about Nashville is, is relevant. Um, like I think it, it's a, it's enough of a thing that I'm not just extremely confident he's not going to amount to much. Like I think there's still a chance that he becomes an everyday second baseman or something for the Brewers. Um, I still think the bat is too light for him to be an everyday guy, especially on a team that like already has. Like if if you have Frelick and you have Mister Ruiz and like those kind of guys in the lineup already. I just don't think there's room for many more sort of contact first light power guys like Terang. Uh, but it, it's, you know, it's, it's solid. I think it, it was a, it was a successful season for him. It wasn't as, as successful as like South Relic season, but I think it was, it was fine. Yeah. So actually to your point, I just looked up the splits and this is even more encouraging, uh, honestly, because he only hit four of his home runs at home, he hit nine of his home runs on the road. So you could probably say that the home park was probably suppressing that power a little bit. And there was maybe mm-hmm. even a little bit more power in there than what like the stats themselves showed. So he might have even been a little bit better if he was in a more hitter friendly environment as opposed to someplace that that saps that power. So so. Like the the park factors, um, Nashville is the second most pitcher friendly uh, home run park, only behind Lehigh Valley. Hmm. Um, so I mean, yeah, I, I, that is that is encouraging. Yeah. So there's maybe even a little bit more power in there, and I'm starting to see it, James. I'm starting to see the <laughs> the, the, the thing that I've wanted to see for so long here. So I'm I'm gonna be sitting here and the other thing to just remember about Tarag, I feel like I'm the man's personal uh, PR department here but like uh he's still you know 22 years old he'll be playing next year as a, as a 23 year old like he's still relatively young even though he he seems to have kind of been around forever and I think that this is a recurring theme in Bryce Tarang's like life is he was on everybody's radar as like a 14 year old and there was a point, like maybe when he was a sophomore, like his sophomore going into junior season, where people were talking about him as being the potential 1-1 player, just because he seemed to have kind of an across-the-board skill set. But by the time he actually, the draft came along, people had kind of tired of him, and it was like, well, how much upside is there really here, and like those sorts of things. And now we're seeing it play out again in pro ball, where he gets in, and he's, you know, 2018 number one draft pick, but... He's still not very old, like doing what he did at AAA as a 22 year old is a perfectly like age appropriate level for like a guy who's 22 being in AAA for a full season. There's nothing wrong with that. So, yeah, it's just 
it, it, the the Bryce Terang of it all just like never ends. So it'll be interesting to see because I do think next year, I think there's a good chance that he is in the major leagues for a lot of it and potentially in the Jace Peterson role because Jace Peterson is a free agent. And I think that kind of bumping around and playing some different positions defensively, which was a thing he was doing late in the AAA season, would be a you know potential benefit for him and they would manage to find a way if he was up in the major leagues for the full season playing in that utility role they would manage to get him you know 400 plus plate appearances which I think you kind of like to see young guys play every single day but I think if you're if you're in like say the big leagues for a full season and you're getting 400 plus plate appearances you're playing quite a bit so it's not necessarily like a problem from a uh, guy needs to be in the lineup on a consistent basis standpoint right no, no. I mean, you with a guy like Terang, he has to kind of earn everyday playing time. Like he has to sort of hit his way into that. Like you don't just give him that. Uh, if you're a team that has any aspirations at all, like you have to make a guy like that sort of hit his way into it. But um, I mean, if if Bryce Terang has 400 plate appearances in the majors next year, I. I'm not that thrilled about about where where the the, the depth chart and, and the lineup is is at, but um, you know we'll we'll see we'll see what happens. I I do agree he will be in the majors for a good chunk of of next season. Yeah, and it's also interesting he doesn't have a platoon split. He actually has a reverse platoon split by just a, a shade. He has a 781 OPS against left-handed pitchers versus a uh, 767 OPS against right-handed pitchers. So that also kind of plays into a uh, more playing time. Like you wouldn't necessarily want to platoon somebody in that sort of situation. So anyway, um, all right, we've we've gotten the Bryce Terang. Uh, mention out of the way this week. So moving on to Garrett Mitchell, who you had a little bit higher than I did on the uh, on the top 30s that we did last month. And so I was looking at his major league numbers and playing around on fan graphs a little bit. And holy cow. Uh, so his overall line in granted, you know, small sample it was like 68 plate appearances was 311, 373, 459. And I think that is going to have a lot of people spending the winter excited about Garrett Mitchell's potential for the future. But I look at the 548 batting average on balls in play and the 41.2% uh, strikeout rate at the MLB level. And I like look at that and almost panic because that those are really really poor indicators for me. So is, is this a reason for people to panic or not? I don't think so. I, I, I did my sort of final uh, prospect ranking update of the season um, earlier in the week. And he's now fourth for me um, behind Chuyo Ruiz and Frelick. Uh, so I've come down a little bit. Um, from where I was when we when we were ranking the system, um, but I, I I was panicked, sort of at the halfway point of the season by how poor he'd been at Double A, and I kind of look at what he did, essentially the second half at Double A, Triple A in the big leagues, like to me he kind of in the second half reestablished himself as a potential everyday player for this team 
at some point in the future. Um, obviously, the, the strikeout rate in the majors is high. Uh, the BABIPs at AAA and in the majors are high. But I, I was close to almost writing him off like halfway through the season. Mm-hmm. And so just the fact that he was able to make some adjustments and even get to the majors at all. And, you know, obviously there's, there's no sort of sustainability in those big league numbers because of the, the strikeout rate, the bad up and everything. But like he did have some success. Um, I, I just, I think it was a, a big second half for Mitchell and I'm kind of, not looking too much at the the strikeout rate in the majors. I mean, that's that's sort of where you would have thought it would have been, right? Like, I, I don't yeah. think did anyone think he was going to come up and just be this like awesome contact hitter against big league pitching the first time? Like, I I didn't really think that was going to happen. So, um, I'm I'm generally positive about what Mitchell did this season. Okay, so not a a, a cause for real alarm and panic there. All right. Um, moving on to a small sample. So this is going to be, there's a few small samples here that are really going to be ridiculous. But, uh, so Jefferson Caro hit 313, 329, 530 in 85 plate appearances after his late promotion to high A Wisconsin. How big is this looming in your mind when evaluating where Jefferson Caro is as a prospect at this point? So like, is this a true breakout or not? Um, I I'm kind of in the I'm kind of in the middle on that. Um, you know, he's every scouts love scouts love Carol uh, a lot. Yeah, they really love him. Yeah, um, I mean he's he's kind of just a classic good catching prospect, and it's it seems like there's more of those now than ever ever before really uh and it's good that the brewers have one of them um i'm really interested to see i'm going to be going to the the arizona fall league in uh in november i'm going to be interested to see what he looks like hopefully i can get eyes on him but um i don't expect him to put up big numbers in the fall league i mean he's he's probably the youngest guy there uh on the position player side you know bought or at least top five youngest players there um but I, I think that because he he kind of slowed down at the low A, if I'm remembering right, like kind of first two three months of the year. I don't think the numbers were that great. No, he, he definitely slowed down. He did, and then he really kind of took off and forced that promotion. Um, so something was really kind of clicking for him at both levels in in the second half of the season and. Uh, I don't think that's a sustainable, like what he did at, at high A. Like if, if he played another twenty games at high A, I think his numbers would have come down a little bit. But um, just kind of getting to high A, getting the nod to go to the AFL. Uh, I you know the arrows are pointing up with with Carroll for me. Yeah, just to your point on that, like yeah, he really did have a jump late in the season there like looking at the various levels that he was at um he did sort of well may was actually his really bad month but by the time june rolled around he was 
right. You're looking yeah, at the, the batting averages by month were pretty decent. Yeah, that, at that point. that's that makes sense. Like he did, I I remember him kind of tanking his numbers. Yeah, May, and then he was just really good for for the rest of the season. Yeah, and his his start in April was actually kind of slow too. But he then really, yeah, you're looking at his his month by month OPSs. Once you get into June, nine thirty nine, seven sixty nine. Into August, you're looking at 1.12. September, 1.215. Like, yeah, he really did finish strong. And that's, you have to remember how much goes into being a catcher, learning how to catch, learning how to do all that stuff. And he just, uh, today, hey, look at this. As we record, uh, (laughs) as we record, today is Jefferson Caro's birthday. So happy uh, 20th birthday to Jefferson Caro. Uh, And, uh, I, I would imagine he probably starts again next year at uh, at high A, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if we saw him make the jump to double A next year. And that's always, you know, a big a big test for any catch or for any uh, hitter is that that jump to double A. So we'll probably get to see that next year as long as he starts out fairly strong at Wisconsin. So very interesting. All right, moving on. Um and this one was a little bit uh, I, like I'll, I'll go through the numbers here, but Robert Gasser's walk rate jumped a few percentage uh, points every time he was promoted this year. He began the year in high A and ended the year with high A in uh, for San Diego and ended the year in um, in triple A for Wisconsin or sorry, triple A for the Brewers. And his uh, walk rates here jumped from. in high A to 9.6 in double A and then 13.4% in triple A. How concerning is that? Or is that just something you kind of expect when a guy's getting, you know, sort of moved along quickly like he did this year? Yeah, I wish, I wish that I had the data on his velocity in uh, like, you know, if, he, if he'd been in the big leagues for all of this, we could sort of see where his fastball velocity was in all these starts. Um, I wonder if the Brewers maybe told him to try throwing it a little harder. Because um, sometimes that will obviously lead to, you know, you're, you're kind of comfortable at a certain velocity and that's where you're throwing strikes and commanding your pitches. And then if you try to bump it up a little bit higher – then the strike throwing um, maybe goes a little bit. Uh, so I wonder if after they acquired him, if they maybe said, "Hey, like let's see if let's see what you look like throwing, you know, ninety four instead of ninety two or whatever he was." Um, but I don't have that data. Uh, if you kind of look at his game log, though, um, he really it was it was three starts that sort of tanked his walk rate. Uh, he had a September two start where he walked six and three and two thirds. Uh, September sixteenth start where he walked four and five, and a September twenty two start where he walked five and six. But like the rest of the starts, there's like a there's a nine strikeout one walk game on August twenty six, an eight strikeout one walk game on September 9th. Uh, he had zero walks in his final start. So it wasn't like a it wasn't a persistent thing where each time out he was he was walking like three or four guys. It was just there were these three starts where he, he walked way too many. Um, so I I would assume he was working on something 
uh, after the trade that the Brewers maybe told him to work on, and, and that might be the cause for it. Uh, definitely something to keep an eye on. I, I'll be interested to see where his walk rate is early next season and maybe even in spring training. Uh, but I I think it's it's probably just something where he was working on something and, and it led to him throwing fewer strikes than he had done. Yeah, the thing I first thing that popped into my mind was, is this a case of the better the hitters, the more disciplined, mature hitter he faces, the more willing they are to lay off of stuff that's, you know, maybe outside the strike zone. And he's he's getting fewer swings and misses on pitches outside the zone. Um, but I don't have the numbers on that. So I, that was the first thing that kind of made me wonder was like, is this a thing that as he's moving up the ladder, command is being exposed a little bit more? Um or if yeah, it's possible because he oh, there's also the organizational shift in there, right? Like he moves from one organization to another. So what you're saying is perfectly plausible too. That um, and it's something I hadn't thought of. That like potentially that's what's going on there. We know the Brewers really liked him. That they have he has pitch characteristics that uh, that they liked, and that's why they were they were after him. So uh, yeah, it, it just it was something that jumped out to me when I was looking at his progression throughout the year. So. Um, moving on to this year's first round pick and, uh, 11 of Eric Brown Jr.'s 26 hits were for extra bases and he stole 19 of 21 attempts, uh, in pro ball this summer. Okay. So is his, uh, is he the best power speed Brewers prospect since Gene Segura a thing? (laughs) And I, I'm thinking specifically Gene Segura because I watched him, uh, absolutely uh humiliate the cardinals yesterday and uh he was the one who had the go or actually the tying and the go-ahead rbis in that uh that cardinals meltdown that just warmed my dark heart um but i was thinking back about like brewer's power speed combo hasn't been a thing it was a lot under jack zarenchik back in the uh in the aughts there was a lot of power speed guys less so now so is he like a the best power speed guy in a very long time for them, certainly under Stearns, I think, or am I, am I missing somebody that you're going to call to my I attention? I mean, I think, I think Jackson Cheerio is probably the best power speed guy. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, but I, I, I think I, did I mention, like I, I have comp Eric Brown kind of his big league potential to Segura. I don't know if I did that on this show, but. Oh, um, okay. Like I, I do see I, – I think they have very similar games. Um, like I think if all goes well, I could see Eric Brown having a Gene Segura type of career, which would be great. Um, right. So I I think after Cheerio, I think you could make a case that he probably is that guy. Uh, we at least – we kind of know that like Frelick and Ruiz – like their powers, we kind of know it's capped a little. Whereas with Brown, it's sort of more wide open. Like we don't necessarily know what his potential is. Um, I mean, Mitchell raw power yeah. and raw speed has like he he will rate highly there, but game power has not quite been there for Mitchell. Yeah, and that is the thing, the ever-confounding thing with Mitchell is that you watch him in batting practice, supposedly, and he is just hitting tanks. 
And then in the game, like that UCLA swing, like pops back out and you're like, ah, well, where's the power? But we have seen him actually hit for some power at the big league level. Like when he when he has that moment, like where he wants to attack a baseball, he did it uh, at the end of the season. Like he had he had a home run at the very end of the season, too. So we saw it a little bit. It's just, yeah, it's one of those one of those weird things. Um, yeah. And even physically looking at like Eric Brown Jr., I'm looking at like pictures of him compared with like Segura and like the body types are fairly similar too. like yep. they're, they're kind of short and squat and like, like have that uh, like, just like athletic sort of look uh, um, to them. So, yeah. And, yeah. and like, and short staffs who probably fit better at second base is, is something else that, you know, you kind of would, would connect those two with. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah, shortstops tend to be a little bit taller and a little bit lankier these days. Like, and those guys, yeah, they have more the the second baseman build, kind of in the like also in like thinking of uh, like Colton Wong, like that's mm-hmm. like the sort of classic second baseman build. Um, right. Okay, so let's get like stupid small sample size here because I want to <laughs> ask you. <laughs> Jacob Mizorowski had uh, seven walks and three strikeouts in his uh, his pro debut, which lasted an inning and two thirds. Um, is there anything we could take from this? Because like I just see like seven walks in an inning and two thirds, and I go, "Ooh, uh, there's uh, there's some issues with control there." Like, um, can we really glean anything from it, or could this just be like now he just potentially had a bad day, was nervous, something, whatever? Is there anything you could take from this or not? Well, I mean, the control is the weak spot for him. Um, if if he had, like, if he had plus command and control, he'd be like a future ace, you know. Um, right. And he he might develop that. That'll be like the thing that they're working on him the most with, right? Um, because he's like Beer's player development sent out that uh, video of him, you know, paying the four guys and two scoreless during instructs where he's touching a hundred and averaging 98 and sat 89 on the slider. Like, so everyone, he's not a secret anymore, right? Like everyone sort of is aware of just how nasty he is. Um, But obviously like typically when you get a guy like that, that's touching a hundred and, has the, the crazy, you know, 90 mile an hour slider. Usually the, the command and control is, is a weakness when you've got stuff that's that good. So uh, that'll be the thing to watch with him. Like if he, if he comes out next year and he's got the, the walk rate under 10%, then he's just going to have a monster year. Yeah. Um, and it might not be that quick because you're also talking about a guy who is uh, off the top of my head. He's six seven, right? Like he's big. He is a big, big guy. So yeah, yeah, a lot and, of really lanky, you know, moving parts of the delivery and stuff. Like he sometimes he kind of like falls off the mound sometimes. Like you know, it's it's kind of there's some stuff to clean up there. Yeah. Okay. Um, we had another question here. This was a uh, from a listener. Uh, Sean McAmeal uh, asks us, uh, Ethan Small finished the year with relief appearances. Is Ethan Small as a member of the Brewers bullpen next year a thing or not? Um, are we saying like they're going to just 
is the question like is he just going to be a full-time reliever next year yeah that that he's going to be moved to the the bullpen and that that will allow him to then be like a member of the big league bullpen i think is what he was driving at here um man that's tough i I bet I would bet you that the Brewers don't even know how they're going to use him next year. Like I think I think they're open to that. I think they're open to, um, you know, continuing to develop him as a starter. And I think that it'll kind of come down to just how he performs. I don't. I don't think. I don't think they're going to have a repeat of this year with him. Like if if he's just the same guy as he was this year then I think he will be a reliever uh, but I think they're still going to leave the door open for him to uh, continue developing as a starter and it'll kind of come down to just has he improved you know spring training April May probably um, goes a long way in terms of how he is used the rest of the season yeah, and this really does come down to command for him because that's what just sort of completely abandoned him late in the season was he was just walking a ton of guys, and I think that when he was you know forced then to come into the strike zone, he was just getting lit up, and that was throughout that last uh, run in the majors or sorry in the minors after his that second brief stint in the majors when he came up and had another bad outing, and so they sent him back down, and yeah, it just it. It was a very, very bad year and very discouraging. And it was it's sad because it started off so well. Remember, we were talking about him in, in April and May as, oh, he may have actually found like his his stride here and he's he's figured it out. And then he comes up to the big leagues around Memorial Day, or I think it was on Memorial Day. He made that start on Memorial Day against the Cubs at Wrigley. And since that moment, it's all sort of been uh downhill for him. So he will have work to do over the winter and into next year to sort of recover his previous status if he's going to do that. So um, the last one I wanted to get in here was a Hedbert Perez update because he was so much of the focus of our podcast early on when you first came in. And uh, he's definitely fallen on hard times and isn't the guy that he was. But we've we've mentioned off and on that, like he was doing some things at at low a this year and he's still he's only 19 years old he's not particularly old at this point he may have turned 20 i don't have the the numbers in front of me but um over his final 160 plate appearances at carolina this year he did drop his k rate under 25 percent and maintained a 187 iso um is that a thing to get excited about or not well I have not dropped Perez off of my top 400 yet. Um, That's telling. So I, and I mean, if you're just like box score scouting Perez, he probably shouldn't be a top 400 prospect, but I, I still think he's, he's a, a very gifted hitter in some respects. And that, hasn't gone away uh he does really need to work on his plate discipline and his swing decisions um 
but I do, I do still think there's a very talented hitter in there. And um, he turns 20 in April. Um, so he's not, like, he's not even too old to head back to low A. I'm not sure where they'll assign him. I, I think they'll probably send him back there. Um, Especially maybe early in the year to have him avoid. Yeah. Well, he's been in Appleton, though. Like, he spent the summer of 2020 in Appleton. So, like, he's been there before. Uh, he hasn't been there in the cold before, but he's been there before. Yeah. I mean, I think I think another, you know, I think staying patient to some degree with Perez is warranted here. I, I don't think, you know, I, um, I, I'm not writing him off. I think it's it's probably unlikely at this point that he becomes like an everyday big leaguer, but I, I'm not writing him off yet. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, nineteen years, six months, four days. So yeah, he's he's still got some time to do some things, and um, he at least, if you look at his his season numbers at Carolina this year, he put up a two sixteen, two seventy two, three ninety three line, which is not good, but I wouldn't say. I mean, it's a WRC plus of eighty two. It's it's also not like a disaster. That's not mm-hmm. you know what he did there last year was a disaster. What he did there, that was a 24 WRC plus. What he did there this year was, you know, a step forward from that. So maybe he can build on that. And like you said, the swing decision thing, if they can get like, that's the, we were talking about that on the regular podcast that like the swing decision thing is like the final boss of, uh, of hitting development. Like if you as an organization are able to teach better swing decisions to your guys, uh, like the Dodgers seem to be just so good at this, like they they get guys to sort of become the best versions of themselves that they can be on a, on a really consistent basis. And that would be the thing that you would hope for from the uh, uh, from the the Brewers and like would be huge for somebody like Hedbert Perez, because right now they're just it seems to be one of the biggest things holding him back. So. All right. Well, did you have anything else you wanted to uh, to update before we uh, we left? Any any notes that you uh, had on Brewers prospects that came up late in the season that you'd thought of, or nothing in particular at this point? I think we've we've hit pretty much everything. Um, I mean, I, I do think uh, people shouldn't shouldn't sleep on Carlos Rodriguez. I, I do think he's a a guy to watch for next year. Um, I I think uh, I've got him ranked as like their 12th best prospect at this point. Um, but I, I mean, I think we've, we've hit on, on pretty much everything. Yeah. And like the, another guy that you really love, like Henry Mendez, like pay attention to that guy. Cause he's even younger. He's 18 and in Carolina and putting up astounding uh, strikeout to walk ratios still. So you yeah, just like, look at that and if, go, that's exciting. If, if Henry Mendez, um, if Henry Mendez starts tapping into some game power next year, then look out. Um, I mean, he could be a, he could be a huge riser. Yeah, uh, just yeah to put a finer point on that: sixty-two walks and seventy strikeouts as an eighteen-year-old in uh, in A ball, so or in in low A. So if yeah, like you said, if if there comes power from that. Like this is maybe like the bet that they're making on the on the international side about guys who are very contact oriented and whatever. If he can develop up some power, then yeah, you do get really excited. And like 
He's six foot two and 175 as an 18 year old. So you think like that could fill in a little bit and you, you start to dream on it a little bit. So that's, that's another guy. Um, all right. Well, thank you very much for, for your time as always, James, uh, really appreciate this. And, uh, um, uh, that's pretty much it for this month. We will, uh, we will be back sometime next month, um, to do this again and uh, we'll find a, a different angle to take something else to talk about. Um, and once again, thank you to you, our Patreon sponsors for making this all possible and giving us the excuse to get together and talk about the Brewers minor league system on a monthly basis. Make sure to check back on Monday for our regular podcast.